Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight, we continue our story, The Jungle Book, by Rudyard Kipling. Then an elephant trumpeted, and they all took it up for five or ten terrible seconds. The dew from the trees above spattered down like rain on the unseen backs, and a dull, booming noise began, not very loud at first, and little Tumai could not tell what it was. But it grew and grew, and Kalanag lifted up one forefoot and then the other, and brought them down on the ground. One, two, one, two, as steadily as strip hammers. The elephants were stamping all together now, and it sounded like a war drum beaten at the mouth of a cave. The dew fell from the trees so there was no more left to fall, and the booming went on, and the ground rocked and shivered. Little Tumai put his hands up to his ears to shut out the sound. But it was all one gigantic jar that ran through him, this stamp of hundreds of heavy feet on the raw earth. Once or twice he could feel Kalinag and all the others surge forward a few strides, and the thumping would change to the crushing sound of juicy green things being bruised. But in a minute or two, the boom of feet on hard earth began again. A tree was creaking and groaning somewhere near him. He put out his arm and felt the bark, but Kalinag moved forward, still tramping, and he could not tell where he was in the clearing. There was no sound from the elephants except once, when two or three little calves squeaked together. Then he heard a thump and a shuffle, and the booming went on. It must have lasted fully two hours, and little Tumai ached in every nerve, but he knew by the smell of the night air that dawn was coming. The morning broke in one sheet of pale yellow behind the green hills, and the booming stopped with the first ray as though the light had been in order. Before little Tumai had got the ringing out of his head, before even he had shifted his position, there was not an elephant in sight, except Kalanag, Budmini, and the elephant with the rope galls, and there was neither sign nor rustle nor whisper down to the hillsides to show where the others had gone. Little Tumai stared again and again, Again, the clearing, as he remembered it, had grown in the night. More trees stood in the middle of it, but the undergrowth and the jungle grass at the sides had been rolled back. Little Tumai stared once more. Now he understood the trampling. The elephants had stamped out more room, had stamped the thick grass and juicy caned trash, the trash into slivers, the slivers into tiny fibers, and the fibers into hard earth. Why? said little Tumai, and his eyes were very heavy. Kalanag, my lord, let us sleep by Pudmini, and go to Peterson Sahib's camp, or I shall drop from my neck. The third elephant watched the two go away, snorted, wheeled round, and took his own path. He may have belonged to some little native king's establishment, fifty or sixty or a hundred miles away. Two hours later, as Peterson Sahib was eating early breakfast, his elephants, who had been double-chained that night, began to trumpet, and Pudmini, mired to the shoulders with Kalanag, very footsore, shambled into the camp, 
Little Two Mice's face was gray and pinched, and his hair was full of leaves and drenched with dew. But he tried to salute Peterson Sahib and cried faintly, The dance, the elephant dance, I have seen it, and I die. As Kalanag sat down, he slid off his neck in a dead faint. But since native children have no nerves worth speaking of, in two hours he was lying very contentedly in Peterson Sahib's hammock, with Peterson Sahib's shooting coat under his head, and a glass of warm milk, a little brandy, with a dash of quinine inside of him, and while the old hairy scarred hunters of the jungle sat three deep before him, looking at him as though he were a spirit, he told his tale in short words, as a child will, and wound up with, Now, if I lie in one word, send men to see, and they will find that the elephant folk have trampled down more room in their dance room, and they will find ten and ten, and many times ten, tracks leading to that dance room. They made more room with their feet. I have seen it. Kalanag took me, and I saw. Also, Kalanag is very leg-weary. Little Tumai lay back and slept all through the long afternoon and into the twilight. And while he slept, Peterson Sahib and Macha Appa followed the track of the two elephants for fifteen miles across the hills. Peterson Sahib had spent eighteen years in catching elephants, and he had only once before found such a dance place. Macha Appa had no need to look twice at the clearing to see what had been done there, or to scratch with his toe in the packed rammed earth. The child speaks truth, said he. All this was done last night, and I have counted seventy tracks crossing the river. See, Sahib, where put me in his leg eye and cut the bark of that tree? Yes, he was there too. They looked at one another, and up and down, and they wondered, for the ways of elephants are beyond the wit of any man to fathom. Forty years and five, said Macha Appa, have I followed my lord, the elephant, but never have I heard that any child of man had seen what this child has seen. By all the gods of the hills, it is... What can we say? And he shook his head. When they got back to camp, it was time for the evening meal. Peterson Sahib ate alone in his tent, but he gave orders that the camp should have two sheep and some fowls, as well as a double ration of flour and rice and salt, for he knew that there would be a feast. Big Tumai had come up hot-foot from the camp in the plains to search for his son and his elephant, and now that he had found them, he looked at them as though he were afraid of them both. And there was a feast by the blazing campfires in front of the lines of picketed elephants, and little Tumai was the hero of it all. And the big brown elephant catchers, the trackers and drivers and ropers, and the men who knew all the secrets of breaking the wildest elephants, passed him from one to the other, and they marked his forehead with blood from the breast of a newly killed jungle cock to show that he was a forester initiated and free of all the jungles. And at last, when the flames died down and the red lights of the logs made the elephants look as though they had been dipped in blood too, Macha Appa, the head of all the drivers of all the rakettos, Macha Appa, Peterson Sahib's other self, who had never seen a made road in forty years, Macha Appa, who was so great he had no other name than Macha Appa, leaped to his feet, with little Tumai held high in the air above his head, and shouted, 
Listen, my brothers, listen. Listen to you, my lords, with the lines there, for I, Macha Appa, am speaking. This little one shall be no more called little Tumai, but Tumai of the elephants, as his great-grandfather was called before him. What never man has seen, he has seen through the long night, and the favor of the elephant folk and of the gods of the jungles is with him. He shall become a great tracker. He shall become greater than I, even I, Machapa. He shall follow the new trail and the stale trail and the mixed trail with a clear eye. He shall take no harm in the Kedda when he runs under their bellies to root the wild tuskers. And if he slips before the feet of the charging bull elephant, the bull elephant shall know who he is and shall not crush him. Aha, my lords, in the chains, he whirled up the line of pickets. Here is the little one that has seen your dances in your hidden places, the sight that never man saw. Give him honor, my lords. Salam Karo, my children. Make your salute to Tumai of the Elephants. Ganga Bashad, aha. Hiraguj, Birchiguj, Kutaguj, aha. Putmini, thou hast seen him at the dance, and thou too, Kalanag, my pearl among elephants. Aha, together to Tumai of the Elephants. Borrow. And at that last wild yell, the whole line flung up their trunks till the tips touched their foreheads and broke out into one full salute, the crashing trumpet peal that only the Viceroy of India hears, the Salamu of the Kada. But it was all for the sake of little Tumai, who had seen what never man had seen before, the dance of the elephants at night and alone in the heart of the Garrow Hills. Shiv and the Grasshopper The song that Tumai's mother sang to the baby. Shiv, who poured the harvest and made the winds to blow, sitting at the doorways of a day of long ago, gave to each his portion, food and toil and fate, from the king upon the gutty to the beggar at the gate. All things made he, Shiva the preserver. Mahadeo, Mahadeo, he made all. Thorn for the camel, fodder for the kine, and mother's heart for sleepy head, O little son of mine. Wheat he gave to rich folk, millet to the poor, broken scraps for holy men that beg from door to door, battle to the tiger, carrion to the kite, and rags and bones to wicked wolves without the wall at night. Naught he found too lofty, none he saw too low. Parbati beside him watched them come and go, Thought to cheat her husband, turning Shiv to jest, stole the little grasshopper and hid it in her breast. So she tricked him, Shiva the preserver. Mahadeo, Mahadeo, turn and see. Tall are the camels, heavy are the kine, but this was least of little things, O little son of mine. When the dole was ended, laughingly she said, Master of a million mouths, is not one unfed? Laughing, Shiv made answer, all have had their part, even here the little one, hid neath thy heart. From her breast she plucked it, Parbati the thief, saw the least of little things, nor a no-grown leaf, saw and feared and wondered, making prayer to Shiv, 
who hath surely given meat to all that live. All things made he, Shiva the Preserver. Mahadeo, Mahadeo, he made all, thorn for the camel, fodder for the kine, and mother's heart for sleepy head, O little son of mine. Her Majesty's Servants You can work it out by fractions or by simple rule of three, but the way of Tweedledum is not the way of Tweedledee. You can twist it, you can turn it, you can plate it till you drop, but the way of Pillywinky's not the way of Winklepop. It had been raining heavily for one whole month, raining on a camp of thirty thousand men and thousands of camels, elephants, horses, bullocks, and mules all gathered together at a place called Rawalpindi, to be reviewed by the Viceroy of India. He was receiving a visit from the Emir of Afghanistan, a wild king of a very wild country. The Emir had brought with him for a bodyguard eight hundred men and horses who had never seen a camp or a locomotive before in their lives. Savage men and savage horses from somewhere at the back of Central Asia. Every night a mob of these horses would be sure to break their heel ropes and stampede up and down the camp through the mud in the dark. The camels would break loose and run about and fall over the ropes of the tents. You can imagine how pleasant that was for men trying to go to sleep. My tent lay far away from the camel lines, and I thought it was safe. But one night a man popped his head in and shouted, Get out, quick! They're coming! My tent's gone! I knew who they were, so I put on my boots and waterproof and scuttled out into the slush. Little Vixen, my fox terrier, went out through the other side, and then there was a roaring and a grunting and a bubbling, and I saw the tent cave in as the pole snapped and began to dance about like a mad ghost. A camel had blundered into it and wet and angry as I was. I could not help laughing. Then I ran on because I did not know how many camels have gotten loose, and before long I was out of sight of the camp, plowing my way through the mud. At last I fell over the tail end of a gun, and by that I knew I was somewhere near the artillery lines where the cannon were stacked at night, as I did not want to plow about any more in the drizzle in the dark. I put my waterproof over the muzzle of one gun and made a sort of wigwam with two or three rammers that I found, and lay along the tail of another gun, wondering where Vixen had got to, and where I might be. Just as I was getting ready to go to sleep, I heard a jingle of harness and a grunt, and a mule passed me shaking his wet ears. He belonged to a screw-gun battery, for I could hear the rattle of the straps and rings and chains and things on his saddle pad. The screw-guns are tiny little cannon made in two pieces that are screwed together when the time comes to use them. They are taken up mountains anywhere that a mule can find a road, and they are very useful for fighting in rocky country. Behind the mule there was a camel, with his big soft feet squelching and slipping in the mud, and his neck bobbing to and fro like a strayed hen's. Luckily I knew enough of beast language, not wild beast language, but camp beast language, of course, from the natives to know what he was saying. He must have been the one that flopped into my tent, for he called to the mule, what shall I do? Where shall I go? I have fought with a white thing that waved and it took a stick and hit me on the neck. That was my broken tent pole and I was very glad to know it. Shall we run on? Oh, it was you, said the mule, you and your friends that have been disturbing the camp. All right, you'll be beaten for this in the morning, but I may as well give you something on account now. 
I heard the harness jingle as the mule backed and caught the camel two kicks in the ribs that rang like a drum. Another time, he said, you'll know better than to run through a mule battery at night, shouting thieves and fire. Sit down and keep your silly neck quiet. The camel doubled up camel fashion like a two-foot rule and sat down whimpering. There was a regular beat of hoofs in the darkness, and a big troop horse canted up as steadily as though as he were on parade, jumped a gun tail, and landed close to the mule. It's disgraceful, he said, blowing out his nostrils. Those camels have racketed through our lines again, the third time this week. How's a horse to keep his condition if he isn't allowed to sleep? Who's here? I'm the breech piece mule of number two gun of the first group battery, said the mule. And the other one's one of your friends. He's waked me up too. Who are you? Number 15, E-Truth, Ninth Lancers, Dick Cunliffe's horse. Stand over a little there. Oh, beg your pardon, said the mule. It's too dark to see much. Aren't these camels too sickening for anything? I walked out of my lines to get a little peace and quiet here. My lord, said the camel humbly, we dreamed bad dreams in the night and we were very much afraid. I am only a baggage camel of the 39th Native Infantry and I'm not as brave as you are, my lords. Then why didn't you stay and carry baggage for the 39th Native Infantry instead of running all about the camp, said the mule. They were such very bad dreams, said the camel. I'm sorry. Listen, what is that? Shouted Ron Hunt again. Sit down, said the mule, or you'll snap your long stick legs between the guns. He cocked one ear and listened. Bullocks, he said. Gun bullocks. On my word, you and your friends have waked the camp very thoroughly. It takes a good deal of prodding to put up a gun bullock. I heard a chain dragging along the ground and the yoke of the great sulky white bullocks that drag the heavy siege guns when the elephants won't go any nearer to the firing came shouldering along together, and almost stepping on the chain was another battery mule, calling wildly for Billy. That's one of our recruits, said the old mule to the troop horse. He's calling for me. Here, youngster, stop squealing. The dark never hurt anybody yet. The gun bullocks lay down together and began chewing the cud. But the young mule huddled close to Billy. Things, he said. Fearful and horrible, Billy. They came into our lines while we were asleep. Do you think they'll kill us? I've a very great mind to give you a number one kicking, said Billy. The number of a fourteen-hand mule with your training. Disgracing the battery before this gentleman. Gently, gently, said the true boys. Remember, they are always like this to begin with. The first time I ever saw a man, it was in Australia when I was a three-year-old, I ran for half a day, and if I'd seen a camel, I should have been running still. Nearly all our horses for the English cavalry are brought to India from Australia and are broken in by the troopers themselves. True enough, said Billy. Stop shaking, youngster. The first time they put the full harness with all its chains on my back, I stood on my forelegs and kicked every bit of it off. I hadn't learned the real science of kicking then, but the battery said they had never seen anything like it. But this wasn't harness or anything that jingled, said the young mule. You know I don't mind that now, Billy. It was things like trees, and they fell up and down the lines and bubbled, and my head rope broke, and I couldn't find my driver, and I couldn't find you, Billy, 
So I ran off with, with, with these gentlemen. Hmm, said Billy. As soon as I heard the camels were loose, I came away on my own account. When a battery, a screw-gun mule calls Gun Bullock's gentleman. He must be very badly shaken up. Who are you fellows on the ground there? The gun bullocks rolled their cuds and answered both together. The seventh yoke of the first gun of the big gun battery. We were asleep when the camels came, but when we were trampled on, we got up and walked away. Tis better to lie quiet in the mud than to be disturbed on good bedding. We told your friend here that there was nothing to be afraid of, but he knew so much that he thought otherwise. <sighs> they went on chewing. That comes of being afraid, said Billy. You get laughed at by gun bullock. I hope you like it, young'un. The young mule's teeth snapped, and I heard him say something about not being afraid of any beefy old bullock in the world. But the bullocks only clicked their horns together and went on chewing. Now don't be angry after you've been afraid. That's the worst kind of cowardice, said the troop horse. Anybody can be forgiven for being scared in the night, I think. If they see things they don't understand, we've broken out of our pickets again and again, 450 of us, just because a new group got to telling tales of whip snakes at home in Australia till we were scared to death of the loose ends of our head ropes. That's all very well in camp, said Billy. I'm not above stampeding myself for the fun of the thing when I haven't been out for a day or two. But what do you do on active service? Oh, that's quite another set of new shoes, said the troop horse. Dick Gunliff's on my back then and drives his knees into me, and all I have to do is to watch where I'm putting my feet, and to keep my hind legs well under me and be bridle-wise. What's bridle-wise, said the young mule. By the blue gums of the black block, snorted the troop horse. Do you mean to say that you aren't taught to be bridle-wise in your business? How can you do anything unless you can spin round at once when the rain is pressed on your neck? It means life or death to your man. And of course, that's life and death to you. Get round with your hind legs under you the instant you feel the rain on your neck. If you have it room to swing round, rear up a little and come round on your hind legs. That's being bridle-wise. We aren't taught that way, said Billy the mule stiffly. We're taught to obey the man at our head. Step off when he says so and step in when he says so. I suppose it comes to the same thing. Now, with all this fine, fancy business and rearing, which must be very bad for your hocks, what do you do? That depends, said the troop horse. Generally, I have to go in among a lot of yelling, hairy men with knives. Long, shiny knives. Worse than the farrier's knives. And I have to take care that Dick's boot is just touching the next man's boot without crushing it. I can see Dick's lance to the right of my right eye, and I know I'm safe. I shouldn't care to be the man or horse that stood up to Dick and me when we're in a hurry. Don't the knives hurt? said the young mule. Well, I got one cut across the chest once, but that wasn't Dick's fault. A lot I should have cared whose fault it was if it hurt, said the young mule. You must, said the troop horse. If you don't trust your man, you may as well run away at once. That's what some of our horses do, and I don't blame them. As I was saying, it wasn't Dick's fault. The man was lying on the ground, and I stretched myself not to tread on him, and he slashed up at me. Next time I have to go over a man lying down, I shall step on him. Hard. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great public domain stories like this one to feature on the podcast. If you know of any, 
please let us know. Email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. We now have a YouTube channel of some of our greatest stories. Go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me A Coffee link on every page and post. Don't forget to give us a review on iTunes. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep, that we're putting people to sleep every single night. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs)